Hey, that was a guy with money in his pockets and not much time on his hands. But you know, even when we've got a doctor who's rooting for us, we don't have a whole lot of time on our hands. I think we've all probably entertained this hypothetical situation. You're in your doctor's office, and he's explaining to you this rare disease that you've contracted. And he says, the good news is that you will have no painful symptoms. In fact, uh, you will experience nothing abnormal. But the bad news is that you've got, at most, three months to live. And I think we've all played with that question, what would I do with my time if I knew it was very brief? How would I live today if I knew there was no tomorrow? You know, some people would probably just kick back and wait. Some people would try to squeeze in all of those things that they've never done. Traveling the world, skydiving, bungee jumping. Some people would climb atop a building with a high-powered rifle and take as many others with them as they could. How would you respond? Well, in our passage this morning, Peter brings that situation out of the hypothetical and into the practical. Notice what he says in chapter 4 and verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. This earthly life in the flesh and this present age that he's been talking about in the first part of this chapter is not going to go on forever. There's going to be a termination. There is going to be a consummation of all things. And Peter says that end is impending. It's at hand. It's so close you can almost touch it. Paul said in Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone, the day is at hand. John said in 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. Our time is limited. Jesus is coming back. The end of all things is at hand. I love thunderstorms. Always have. They remind me of the power of my God. And I love to st- stand outside when a thunderstorm is about to come. And I love to feel the wind as it picks up. And I love to feel the air as it cools down. And I love to watch the clouds as they roll in. And I want, love to watch the lightning as it develops. And there's a certain point when a thunderstorm is coming when you can smell it and you can almost touch it. And Peter says it's the same way with the end. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 3, Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? You see, all the signs are pointing to the end. The wind is picking up, the air is turning cool, the clouds are blowing in, we see the lightning in the distance. The end is is at hand. The question is, what are we going to do with the remaining time? How are we going to live in light of the impending end? You know, some Christians in the early church, on one extreme, 
just settle down into this world like it was never going to end. And so Paul had to write to them in 1 Corinthians 15, 34 and said, says, wake up and stop sinning. On the other extreme, there were some Christians in the early church who just quit their jobs and sat around waiting for Jesus to come back. And so Paul had to write to them in 2 Thessalonians 3.12 and say, get a job and start working and support yourself. Peter says, the end is at hand. The question is, how are you going to respond? And Peter wants to help us answer that question. And so if you'll notice in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's what you need to do. And he gives us five exhortations in this passage. Five practical ways to conduct ourselves in these last days. And I'm going to make these real simple for you. Number one exhortation is think. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment. That phrase means to be in your right mind to be in control of your thoughts, to be balanced and stable in your thinking. The first thing you are going to have to focus on if you are going to change your actions is your thoughts. Because all of your activities are dictated by what you think. I hear people say all the time, I don't know why I did that. Well, I know. It's because you thought it. You see, when you think wrong thoughts, they lead to wrong actions. When you think right thoughts, they lead to right actions. That's why Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And that's why Peter begins here talking about our thoughts. Be of sound judgment. Now what does that mean exactly? Well, in Mark chapter 5, we have the description of a demon-possessed man by the name of Legion. We're told that he lived among the tombs, he couldn't be restrained even with chains, and he ran around cutting himself with stones. Jesus came along and delivered that man from demons. And this same word is used in that passage, Mark chapter 5 and verse 15, to describe his new condition. It says, he was sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. He was no longer being controlled. He was in control of his thoughts. Because he came in contact with Jesus, he had a whole new perspective on life. This same word is also used in Romans 12.3 where Paul says, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. So sound judgment means to be under control and to be humble. It means to think rightly and to think lowly. It's to have God's perspective on myself, humility, and on everything else in this world so that I see it from His perspective. And so Peter says, since the end is at hand, 
We need to think with sound judgment. You know, sometimes we find ourselves trapped among the tombs and we lose our perspective on why we're in this world. The nearness of the coming of Christ ought to disturb our complacency and ought to give us a perspective that affects our daily lives. Several years ago, I was standing out in the front yard with my family watching a storm. The wind was blowing up the street really hard. And as we were standing there watching it, suddenly the wind changed directions 180 degrees and it started blowing down the street harder than it was blowing up the street. And I came to the conclusion that our neighborhood, the end of our neighborhood was at hand. Now, I wanted to stand out there with my family and see what was going to happen next. But knowing that the neighborhood was coming to an end brought me to sound judgment. And so I said, get in the basement. And that's what we did. And that was a tornado that took half of the educational wing off of this building. You see, when we know that the end is at hand, it ought to bring us to right thinking, sound judgment that leads to right action. Second exhortation. First is think. Second is pray. Verse 7 continues. Be of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That word sober means literally to be free from the influence of intoxicants, just the way we use the word today. But it came to mean in that day also the idea of being watchful and being alert. And that's a necessary ingredient in prayer. I have to be alert to the urgency. I have to be alert to the needs of others. I have to be alert to the necessity and importance of prayer. And Peter says, because the end is at hand, we ought to be more alert. What do people tend to do in a crisis? Plane crash, tornado, catastrophe. They pray. Peter says, the end is at hand. Jesus is coming back. This world is going to reach its culmination. We need to be praying. I think I can speak for most of us here when I say we don't pray enough. We don't pray enough. And when someone asks us why we don't pray enough, what's our answer? We're too busy. We have too much to do and too little time. And that's why it's interesting to me, Peter says the end is at hand, time is short, so what? Pray. Peter says, when you only have a little time, pray more. Now, Peter was slow to learn this lesson. Jesus took him into the garden with the other disciples, and he took Peter, James, and John a little further, and he said, you guys be my prayer warriors. And then Jesus went away a stone's throw and began to pray to the Father the night before the crucifixion. And he came back to Peter a little later, 
And in Mark 14, 37, he said, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Those were cutting words. You know, when Jesus comes back, I don't know about you, but I don't want him to have to wake me up out of my spiritual slumber. I don't want to be standing before Jesus Christ when he comes back, wiping the spiritual sleep out of my eyes. When I was in Bible college, I had a friend by the name of Dan Small, and I remember we were driving along one day, and Dan turned to me and he said, You know, I pray so little. I pray so little that I'm afraid if Jesus came back today, he'd have to introduce himself to me. And I've always remembered that because it challenged me to pray. And Peter says, the end is at hand. What should we do? What should we accomplish? Number one, think rightly. Number two, pray. Third exhortation, love. Verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter assumes that as Christians, we are going to have active love for one another. That's a given. Christians love each other. In fact, the Bible tells us that my love is the evidence to me that I'm a Christian. The fact that I have love for other Christians tells me, gives me evidence that I'm born again. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. But not only is love the evidence to me that I'm a Christian, it's also the evidence to other people that I'm a Christian. That's why Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In fact, love is so essential that John said in 1 John 4, 8, The one who does not love does not know God. If you don't love, you're not a Christian. And so that's why we, when we read this verse, we see that Peter is not telling us to love one another. That's assumed. Peter is telling us in this verse to love one another fervently. That word means strained, stretched. It was used in that day of a muscle that was taunt. It was used to describe a horse that was in full gallop. It suggests intensity. It suggests earnestness. It it suggests full-out extension. Peter is saying, stretch your love. Paul said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, and 10. He said, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Paul says, I don't need to teach you to love one another. God teaches you that, and you're doing it. But I want you to excel still more. Peter's saying the same thing. I want you to stretch 
your love. Love is the most important expression of our Christian character. And that's why Peter begins verse 8 with the words, above all. Love is above all the other virtues. Colossians 3.14 says, And beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is that comprehensive virtue that completes and crowns everything else. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, If you do everything else, but you don't love, you are nothing. And then he went on to say, now abide faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. And then Peter elaborates on why love is so essential at the end of this verse. He says, because love covers a multitude of sins. And that's a quote from Proverbs 10, 12. You are to be fervent in love because love covers a multitude of sins. What comes naturally to us when we see someone else sin? Well, we are curious to find out all the gruesome details. We are anxious to expose it. We're anxious to gossip about it. We're anxious to tell someone else what we know. And we're quick to condemn. Peter says love does not do that. Love looks beyond the faults in another person. Love forgives and forgives and forgives again. Love covers. That's its nature. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, Love your neighbor as yourself. And a lawyer who was wishing to justify himself said, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the story of a certain man who fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him and they left him for dead. And a priest came down the road and he walked around him on the other side. A Levite came down the road and he walked around him on the other side. And then a Samaritan came down the road. There was great hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. This man could have justified walking around on the other side. But instead it says, he bandaged the man up, he put him on his own donkey, he took him to an inn, he cared for him, and he paid for his room and board. That's what it means to love your neighbor because love covers a multitude of sins. Aren't you glad that God didn't sit up in heaven and look down and say, look how disgusting those humans are. Michael, come here. Gabriel, come over here. Look at those people. See, our sins did not become the subject of heavenly gossip. Instead, God said, man has sinned. I'm going to take my big blanket and I'm going to go down and cover their sins. There's a big word in the New Testament. It's propitiation. You come across it in your Bible every once in a while. Real simple word. It, it, it mean, it's from the Hebrew word that means covering. It's used in the Old Testament of the mercy seat because that's the place where God covered the sins of the people of Israel. 
The word propitiation just means this. God's got a big blanket. And he came down and he covered our sins and it cost him the death of his son. That's the love of God. And Peter is saying that's the same love we are to have toward others. Don't tell me you love if all you're doing about the sins of others is gossiping. Don't tell me you love if all you're doing about the sins of others is condemning them. You see, God's love covers. And we need to be expressing that same kind of love toward others, even when it costs us a great deal to do it. Think, pray, love. Fourth exhortation, reach out. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now the Greek word here is philozenia. You already know one Greek word, that's Philadelphia. Phila means love, Delphos means brother, Philadelphia means brotherly love. This word is philozenia. Zenia means strangers. This is stranger love. This is the love of strangers. You see, hospitality is not so much something you show to your friends. Hospitality is something you show to people you don't know. Hospitality in its purest form is when someone walks in here that you have never met and you make them feel welcome. You invite them to lunch. You have them over to your house. See, that's hospitality because hospitality is expressed to strangers. And that's a necessary activity in an effective church because we have strangers coming in here all the time. We call them visitors. How do you react to those people? Hey, buddy, you got my seat. Peter says we are to love them. I bet you can look around this room today and a conservative estimate would be that there are two dozen people that are strangers to you. Peter says we don't have much time left. So get out there and show hospitality. Hospitality turns strangers into friends and brothers and sisters and fellow workers. And Peter says, since Jesus is coming back soon, we need to be characterized by the love of strangers. And then he adds this, without complaining. Now, why does he add that? Well, because complaining is the sin that so often attaches itself to hospitality. Do you ever have somebody over for a meal or have someone spend the night as they're traveling and, and uh, after they're gone and you're cleaning up the mess, you find yourself saying, I'm sick and tired of having to do all that. And they weren't really grateful anyway. And, and why doesn't Edith help me out once in a while? That, that's the Martha syndrome. Remember Martha? She was doing all the work and she went to Jesus and she said, Lord, Tell Mary to help me. 
She was showing hospitality, but she was complaining. You see, this just reminds us that with God, our attitude is just as important as our actions. We're to show hospitality cheerfully and willingly and freely. Love of strangers. And then there's a fifth exhortation, and that is serve. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The shortness of time gives a great urgency to our service. And this verse reminds us that God has not only called you to serve, He has enabled you to serve. He has enabled you by giving you a spiritual gift. Now I want you to notice what Peter says about spiritual gifts in this verse. Number one, everyone has one. Or at least one. He says, as each one has received a special gift. If you want to see the gifts in Scripture, they're listed in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. Your gift might be preaching, teaching, evangelism. It might be giving, exhorting. It might be faith, leading, showing mercy. Every believer has a spiritual gift. So if you're a believer sitting here this morning, you have one. Second, your gift is unique. In my translation, it says you've been given a special gift. That's in italics. The word is not really there. The word comes from the last phrase in the verse where he says, the manifold grace of God. That word manifold means literally multicolored having all different varieties. We have a God who loves variety. And He has given each of us a gift or more than one gift. And I think what Peter is saying here is that even when two people have the same gift, those two gifts are not even the same because they're multicolored. And so as a Christian, you are a spiritual snowflake. No two snowflakes are alike. And God has not only saved you, He's given you a unique gift that makes you different from everybody else. And that is why the Bible tells us that every member is so important in the body of Christ. Because no one else has the unique gift that you have. We need you in the body of Christ. And then thirdly, your gift is not a basis for spiritual pride. That should be obvious in the Word alone. It's a gift And it says it comes from the grace of God. We don't earn it. We don't qualify for it. It is given to us freely. And the gift that I have, listen to this, the gift that I have has nothing to say about my spiritual maturity or my spiritual condition. Sometimes people come to me and say, he's a preacher. Ooh, how spiritual. Doesn't mean a thing. I can have the gift of preaching and I can be carnal. See, the gift that you have is not a basis for spiritual pride. Thirdly, or fourthly, your gift carries with it responsibility. Peter says you're to do it as good stewards. 
A steward is one who is entrusted with something that belongs to his master. You have something that belongs to your master, and that is the gift he's given you, and you are responsible to use it as a good steward. Now, how do you do that? Two ways. Number one, you use your gift to serve others. Notice what it says in this verse. Employ it in serving one another. Your spiritual gift was not given to you so you can go home, lock the doors, and enjoy it by yourself. It was given to you for the benefit of other people. You are to serve others. You are to build up others. You see, no believer can enjoy the benefits of grace in isolation. The only way you can enjoy the benefits of grace is by sharing in giving away that gift that God has given to you. It's only useful when you give it away. And so we are given that gift as stewards. Our responsibility, number one, is to serve one another. Second way we react as responsible stewards is to use our gift to glorify God. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now he mentions two categories there. Whoever speaks and whoever serves. And that may be the two categories you could put all the gifts into. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. There are speaking gifts like teaching and exhorting. There are serving gifts like helps, showing mercy, demonstrating faith. Peter divides them into those two categories and he says, if your gift is a speaking gift, speak as if it were the utterances of God. Now what does that mean? Well, I think what he's saying is this, that it's not enough for a man to simply preach from the Bible. It's not enough for a man to simply tell you true doctrine. If God has given me a gift, then God wants to work through that gift by His Spirit to accomplish His work. So I have to be a willing vessel to allow God to work through the gift He's given me to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. See, I don't take the gift and walk away from God and say, thanks a lot, I'll take care of the rest myself. If God has given me a speaking gift, I'm to be sensitive to allow God to speak through me. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He said, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he said, We thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now let me ask you this. How can you tell when a man is allowing God to minister through the gift that he has? How can you tell? You say, well, he probably yells a lot. He probably bound, you know, beats on the pulpit, jumps around, gets excited. Probably says, God, all the time. He probably has a deep bass voice and is very articulate. 
No. You see, if that's the criteria, then Paul would have flunked the test. Because Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. How can you tell when God is allowed to work through the gift that someone has as a speaking gift? The answer is real simple. The Holy Spirit works in people's lives with His power. It doesn't matter how impressive the preacher is. In fact, I would say this. When you go away from hearing someone who has a gift that God is using or He is allowing God to use in a powerful way, you will go away not saying, great preacher, you will go away saying, great God. And then Peter goes on to say, if your gift is a serving gift, do it in the strength that God supplies. Don't serve in your own strength. Don't do a spiritual task in your fleshly power. Do it with God's power. Now what I like about these two verses is they eliminate all your excuses. Because when God calls you to do something, you say, well, I'm not really able to do that. God says, all right, I've given you a gift. You say, well, I don't have the strength. God says, fine, use my strength. You see, there are no excuses left. God's given you a gift. He's given you the power. All you have to do is obey. And God will accomplish His work. Why did God give us the gift out of His grace? Why does God give us His power? Well, it tells us in the middle of verse 11. It says, so that in all things God may be glorified. You see, the ultimate end is that God is glorified. And in all that I do, I ought to be saying it's God's gift, it's God's grace, it's God's word, it's God's strength. He gets all the glory for anything that's done. A couple years ago, I stopped in Rome on my way to Africa. And I had two days to see Rome. Now, how do you see Rome in two days? Well, I made a priority list. I want to see the Forum. I want to see the Colosseum. I want to see the Pantheon. I want to see the Vatican. I want to see the Sistine Chapel. I made a priority list. And I got to all those places. Peter says, the end is at hand. We don't have much time left. What should you and I be doing in the remaining time? Number one on our priority list, think with God's perspective. Number two, pray for God to impact lives beginning with me. Third, love even the most unlovely because love covers a multitude of sins. Four, reach out to strangers with the love that makes them friends. And five, serve with God's gift in God's power so that in all that I do, He is glorified. And if you will make that your priority list, and if you will be accomplishing those things, then your prayer every day will be, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. 
We thank you for this passage that's so practical because we're living in the last days. Father, help us to wake up spiritually and to prioritize our lives in a way that honors and glorifies you and accomplishes the work that you desire since the time is short. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.